Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us a well and drank from it himself, as he did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I get asked the question, oh, so is John 4.14 the place where we came up with the name Wellspring? I wish I could say the answer is yes, but sadly the answer is no. I want to give you a little bit of a history of our name um, and then move into the message. We started this church in Walnut Creek in 1999, and at the time, we decided to call it Walnut Creek Community Church. And so we came up with the URL, wccc.net. And generally, you know, that, that really worked. Actually, Google was sort of established at that time, so that search engine started, and then there, we were getting a lot of hits from just that name. It was very simple. The problem was we moved eventually one year later to San Lorenzo. And so, you know, it doesn't make sense to call it Walnut Creek Community Church in San Lorenzo. So we decided to change the name. I wish we could say we changed the name based on our vision and mission, but that isn't the case. What happened was is that we really liked the URL, wccc.net, and we said, let's come up with a W name <laughs> that also matches ccc.net. And there were a lot of different choices, all the different W's, and my wife, Sua, was leading a women's ministry within the church, and she called, she called it Wellspring. I actually don't know why she called it Wellspring, <laughs> but um, we thought, well, Wellspring, that fits with WCCC, so we called it Wellspring Covenant Community Church. Of course, you have to match the C's. Wellspring Covenant Community Church, and we went with it until we eventually took out the word, that phrase, covenant community. And then with that, WCCC.net didn't make sense. So anyway, long story short, it's definitely not the most vision-oriented, Christ-centered way of choosing a name. In fact, it's embarrassing. <laughs> and uh, I've had to, I've always been a little troubled to share that story because it is not the most godly reasons why someone would choose a name of a church until going over this passage. And when you look at John 4, 14, you begin to realize, wow, it actually speaks so much of Christ and the gospel. And now I can honestly say I love our name. I wanted to change it. And I actually wanted to change it. My family knows this. I wanted to change the name of the church to Grace Church. And they were like, Grace Church, that is so plain, so blah. Okay. This is, I wanted to do that for the longest time, but couldn't convince enough people to do that. So Wellspring it is. But John 4.14 is all about Wellspring. It's not just about a spring 
and about a well, but it's about the idea that the gospel flows forth from within us through what God has done internally, and then it goes forth to our community and to our world. So I look at this encounter with Jesus and this Samaritan woman and see this progression of this gospel moving forward and moving out. We're gonna, uh, last week we looked at the whole context of this encounter. For the next few weeks, I shared how we're gonna look at different little insights into parts of this encounter. And this week, specifically, it's this progression of the wellspring of life. And in it, we'll look at first the promise of God, verse 10, second, the impediment of sin, verses 11 through 12, and then lastly, the power of the Savior in verses 13 through 14. So we'll first look at this promise that God gives to us through his son in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There's a promise here that Jesus declares is from God the Father. And it's that the gift is the living water. At face value, water is literally life. You can't have life without it. Um, my wife and I, we were walking this past Sunday in, in this beautiful area in the Sonoma Coast, and with it were these incredible flowers, uh, the, the great super bloom that we've experienced in the Bay Area. That's a result of water. And you all know that this past winter was one of the wettest winters that we've experienced in this area. And while in the midst of that rain and those floods and all that might have been bad, but the result, the effect of that is life. The beautiful flowers, irises and daisies and all sorts of flowers just springing forth from the ground. That's sort of why Jesus takes this metaphor and says, if you understand the spring, the living water, that from it flows this abundant life, and that's God's promise. It's a gift for us. Jesus uses a physical uh, picture to explain a spiritual reality. For this woman, she had been drinking, you might say, from a spiritually stagnant water source. I remember a time where a group of us were in Africa. We were in Swaziland, and we were helping this widow with many orphans. And she actually lived on top of a mountain. We had to walk an incredibly long distance down a mountain. And it's, it's really startling because she was not a big person, and she would carry these incredibly big buckets of water. It's, uh, we, we would go down, and she would, we, we said, why don't we help you? It was a four or five guys. So we helped her go all the way down this mountain. And we thought we were going to get to this big raging river. But instead, it was this stagnant water source, a small little area. There was no outlet of water. And it was disgusting. And when we saw that source, we thought, how in the world is she drinking from this? She's providing for her children from this water source. So we filled up her buckets and literally the, the five of us had an incredibly difficult time bringing that water up. We're thinking, how does this woman do this by herself? More than anything, that stagnant water is very much the picture of what this Samaritan woman is drinking from. Not physically, 
but spiritually. You know, she was married five times and then, and then living with another man. And before we judge her too harshly, recognize first of all that in Jesus' day, a woman had virtually no rights and certainly it was very difficult to survive. She needed to be tied directly to a man in a patriarchal society where men were the ones who brought in income. And so for this woman, for whatever reason, she had to provide for herself and the way she figured out she was going to provide for herself was to get married. And to get married not just to one, for whatever reason, it ended. And then another, being married and divorced five times, that's, that says something. And it's a challenge. And so at the very least, in her pursuits, there is this real concern for survival. And with that concern of survival comes self-effort, self-sufficiency, doing whatever it takes to make it through. But one thing we know is that it was apart from Christ, apart from anything to do with God. She would figure it out her own way. In that sense, she's not that different from us. We might not be married and divorced five times, but certainly we've been guilty of trying to live by our own power and strength and ingenuity and effort, not only to survive, but to thrive and to do it apart from God. It's exactly what she was doing. And that's sort of our world too. And in her mind, it was not to trust God in his provisions, but to trust in herself, in her wits, in her prowess, in whatever she could bring to the table, she would make it happen. This is what God calls a broken cistern. Now, I want to explain this to you. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, the Lord says this through Jeremiah, they have forsaken me, they being Israel, the people of Israel, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. To understand this idea is to first recognize that when it speaks of living water, it's speaking of running water. So different or contrasted from that stagnant water source where there's no outflow or inflow of water is a running water or a river or stream has much more potential to bring life. There's no bacteria, hopefully, generally, in this day, maybe not. No, you know, it's generally clean because it's just constantly feeding in and out, in and out. And what God is saying is that these, when he provided for Israel, he provides living water, the fountain. He's the fountain of living waters. He provides life. And what he did provide for Israel was rescue from Egypt, from enslavement, he brings them out of the desert into the promised land, says, I'm going to provide for you. You know, the land of milk and honey. I'm going, everything that you experience that's going to bring you prosperity is going to be from me. And whatever blessings you have, it's going to be me. I want to pour those blessings out on you. But the people of Israel, as they're prospering, they look around and they see all the neighboring peoples around them, the people who don't trust in God. And what they see sometimes is, those people are succeeding and prospering. And so they say, wait a second. Maybe I can sort of hedge my bets and have it all. I can worship God, but just in case, I'll go to the shaman. 
I'll worship Baal, Ashtaroth. I'll worship all these other gods. God won't mind. He'll be the primary, but there'll be secondaries. And so what God says is, I am the fountain of living waters. I promise to provide for you. I've shown it to you. I've provided time and time again. I've protected you. I've prospered you. I've given you everything you need. But by pursuing these other gods, what you're doing is you're creating a cistern, a man-made well. And in this man-made well, it's broken. It has a hole in it. Maybe it's a small hole initially, but eventually that small hole, because of the power of water, will eventually grow to something that can hold no water. And that's the challenge, is that Israel had all these rich blessings of God's presence. God had given to them crops. They're an agrarian society. The way that they live and thrive is through agriculture. And what better way to see God's hand at work than agriculture? They were dependent on the weather, the water that would come. But it's not just agriculture. They would dig into the ground and find gold and silver. And from that would create all these things that God had blessed them with. God wants them to prosper and to enjoy the fruits of all of his blessings. But what happens is that as they're doing that, they say, you know what? Yeah, worshiping God is good, but maybe we could also worship Baal just in case. So they would take the very gift that God had given to them, which is gold, and they would shape it into a bull and they would bow down and worship it. They would take the very fruits and vegetables and all that God had given to them and they would take that and worship it at the altar of another God. It's the broken cistern that holds no water. It eventually has a leak. It will fail them. And when it fails them, they'll come running back to God and say, God, uh, we're sorry. We're sorry. We, we left the fountain of living waters behind. We thought building our own cistern was good enough. And God then says, no, I'm going to judge you. And that's sort of the story of the Old Testament, right? Where the Babylon comes in, destroys the temple, then Persia comes in because they just didn't trust God. He had given them everything. Now, we are the same. We are no different. God has blessed all of you and me with many gifts, talents, skills, provisions. Do you know that not a single thing we have is from our own effort? But you might say, oh, I have a brain. I have my education. I married rightly. Even my faith is something that I've earned. No. Your brain, your breath is from God himself. The job you have is from the Lord. The money, the bank account is yours. We think tithing or giving unto the Lord is a sacrifice for us. But really, God owns everything. And he can take it all away in a moment with simply the ending of the stopping of your heartbeat. And it's over. And so God has not only given all of your own personal talents and gifts, he's given you your children. If you have children, they're from the Lord. And just like our money, our time, our resources, our intellect, our passions, we're meant to steward what we have to give glory to God, not for our own, but for him. We're meant to reflect Christ and to even take that which we have and say, Lord, we trust you with it. But just like the Israelites, 
It's a broken cistern that we choose. Instead of saying, this child, Lord, is yours, everything about it, and I trust you with it, trust you with, with his life, her life, we say, no, this child is mine, and I'm going to shape this child to be exactly like me, or better, actually. They're going to fulfill the dreams that I never could. They're going to go to that school. They're going to play basketball that way, and they're going to fulfill all my hopes and dreams. Their skills are going to be laid down at the altar of Molech or Baal. See, it's taking the very talents and gifts and provisions that God has provided for us to give glory to him, to serve him, to expand his kingdom. And the promise that God says is when you do that, it will be living water. You will experience an abundant joy. It will be far more than you could ever ask for or imagine. But our instinct is to go, no, I need to take all that I have, including my own family, and I'm going to provide for myself, going to make them so great and live for my own glory. And God says, that's a broken cistern. Eventually, it will empty out. And when it does, you will be shocked as to what remains. You cannot survive. There'll be nothing there. This is what actually Jesus is pointing the Samaritan woman towards. For the Samaritan woman, her life was all about doing what I can to make myself prosper. We look at her life and we say, do you really think marrying five men and having another man, that that's somehow going to make you happy? But again, she's only doing what we all do, which is whatever I think is good for me to make my life prosperous and comfortable and successful and whatever I believe will thrive is what's right. And though even everyone else around says, you're in a dark place, that's not a good thing. When you're in that place, you just can't see it. So in a sense, maybe we're not married to five men or five women, but our hearts have that same heart. When we say, I trust myself or what I can attain more than God himself. And when that happens, it will fail you. One day it will. The thing about a broken cistern is that you can have a small leak. When you have a small leak, that broken cistern can provide for you. It can make you feel good. It can quench your thirst for a moment. But the problem with something that is broken and water, which is so powerful, eventually it expands that hole. So the rate of increase of that broken cistern increases over time. Eventually, it will get so great that it's gone. And by the time you go and say, I need some water, and you go to it, it's empty for you. And so too, our lives, if you're living with trying to live the life that you can, whether it's in marriage, in your career, with your children, even though in the moment it can feel so good, so special, but if you keep that pattern up and close your heart to the Lord and live for your glory alone, eventually, maybe not now, but maybe 10 years from now, maybe 30 years from now, certainly at your deathbed, when that you go to that well one more time and you realize it's gone, it's fleeting. You know, I've uh, 
Sue and I are slowly experiencing that empty nest. I mean, granted, it never really gets fully empty, but, but it gets there. And the very things that, it's, it's interesting how life truly starts in one place. You have all these dreams. You, you live your whole life to that end. And as it's moving towards, heading towards the end, I'm, I'm you know, I, one person always in our church always says to me, don't say you're old. Don't say you're old because you don't know old until you're 80. And uh, I always say, well, you know, I'm, I know I'm getting there. Well, as I'm getting there, I just see how it's coming back to the place that we were at. And eventually, it's going to come back to the place where, where I was when I was a child. Can't walk. Have a hard time seeing and hearing. Gonna have a hard time in feeding myself and, you know, even using the restroom myself. And that's gonna happen. If, if we don't die suddenly, it will happen. It is a broken cistern, truly, to live your life for whatever you think right now is urgent to you. And whether it's a small leak or a gigantic leak, one day you will come to that well and you will say, give, it, give me what I need, and it's going to be empty. You do not want to be at that place. For this woman, she, Jesus encountered her and said, you're, you're living this life. I promise you, living water and when you experience it, you will not thirst again. So that's the promise of God. But what we know is that there is an impediment to this promise, the impediment of sin in verses 11 through 12. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drink from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. So you can see she really doesn't get it. For her, the living water, again, is that river. She's saying, where's the river that you're getting water from? She completely misses it. And that's the challenge of encountering someone when their hearts are far from God, is that they're close to him. They're blinded to him. They don't get excited about the things that are of the Lord. It's, if you've ever taken your children, perhaps, to the Grand Canyon, and it's a long drive if you've ever driven or it's a long drive from here and you, you finally get there. You, you go to the edge of the cliff and you see this Grand Canyon. You take them out and say, and they're all tired. They wake up, they're groggy. They come out and they say, look, kids, isn't it so beautiful? I said, yeah, it's nice. Can I go back and play with my iPad? You know, and you just start pulling out your hair and saying, what's wrong with you? You don't understand. You don't appreciate that. I mean, truly, that sounds like an old person, right? <laughs> Isn't this spectacular? That's this woman at the well. Jesus says, going to give you living water, I promise. And then he's, she's like, where? I, I want some water to drink. Where's this living water, or this running water? Paul describes this condition this way in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. All of us were in this state of blindness, everyone here. Some are still in that state. That is to say that there was a time where knowing Christ had no value. If you see in someone you love and care for a lack of heart for Christ, 
do not be surprised by that. It's, this is something that the Bible says is exactly how it is. They are very much like the woman at the well. You know, they just don't get it. And so it is a mistake to somehow think that someone who doesn't actually know Christ is born again should have a passion for Christ, a delight for him. And it is a mistake to think, well, they go to church, they listen to the gospel preached, they go, they've been in gospel train and heard, had just people caring for them. Maybe they've been a gospel trained teacher, but there's, they're teaching, but there's no vibrancy of faith, no delight or desire for God's word. What we're seeing here is that when a person is blinded, according to Paul, there's no way they could see the light of the gospel. Do not be surprised that someone doesn't have that heart. It probably means they don't have the light of the gospel. They're blinded by it. And I actually think that's an important distinction to make as people who care about someone else. Rather than assuming that someone is a Christian, let's actually call them as they are in our hearts and say, I don't think this person knows Christ. They are blinded by it the God of this world. And so therefore, we need to pray for them. You actually have a lot more compassion and understanding of where they're at versus someone who you assume is a Christian just because they speak Christian speak. They go to church every Sunday. They, they've, been, they've even had roles and positions of um, church office or some sort of uh, role of teaching scripture, but you don't see any life in them, any living water, the well. And when that happens, it serves them well if you as a person who cares for them thinks, this person is probably not a believer. I need to pray for them. I need to share the gospel with them again. If we look at what Paul says also in 1 Corinthians 2.14, we see this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. How many times we have perhaps tried to share and connect with someone with the gospel and spiritually discern language when they're not spiritually discerning. Nicodemus was very much like this woman. When Jesus encounters Nicodemus, this is what happens in John 3, 3 to 4. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Again, blindness. So Nicodemus is not that different. Actually, he's very similar. They're similar to the Samaritan woman in that they're spiritually blind, but vastly different in terms of outwardly. So many are quick to judge God as uncaring and unloving, unfaithful, because we're stuck only with what we see, which is always limited. So when trial or suffering or difficulty comes, we automatically perhaps deem God as unloving. If you're praying for something or someone right now in your life and it's not fulfilled, is it tempting to think God doesn't care about me? Have you questioned God's love and goodness? Probably it's because we see God as so small and we are so big, as Ed Welch describes well. You know, this is the, the fact of where Nicodemus is at, the Samaritan woman is at, 
and perhaps where we're at, we cannot see God as he is because of sin and the God of this world. But we are not left there. The power of Christ is displayed, and we see this in verses 13 through 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And here's why. Okay, so Jesus is saying, whoever drinks of the water that I give them, the grace, the blessing, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the key phrase here is in him. The water that I will give him will become in him, in us. If you know Christ, you have a wellspring of water welling up to eternal life inside you, not outside you, inside you. Now, this is really significant because the temptation in the Christian life is to think that the well is outside of us. But here's the problem with a well and the difference between a well and a living water. With a well, you have to actually go to the water. You have to get your instrument, dip it, you know, pull up the pail or whatever and get the water and pour it into a bucket and then bring it. And then you drink it and then you run out and you go back to the well again. Living water, if it is inside, is constant, constantly running. And here's the problem is that as Christians, so often we have thought that oh, I'm spiritually dry. How many of you ever felt that? Said, I'm spiritually dry. And so the answer is you got to go to a retreat. You got to go on a missions trip. You have to read this book. You have to listen to more sermons. You have to do something. Go to a revival meeting, and then you can get that spiritual high again. You might have heard this language. This is very commonplace, especially for those of us who grew up with a revivalistic sort of uh, view of the Christian life. But that runs counter to what Jesus is saying about how we encounter and are experiencing God's grace. It's inside of us, not outside of us. We go back to that again, verses 13, 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And how is that? Is it because you have to go outside and go to the well? Go to the retreat, the revival, listen to a pastor who is really dynamic and has, is very articulate, knows everything? Do I have to go to a Bible study in order to get that? Now, there are places for that, but that's not ultimate to us. The answer is that the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal. The water uh, that I will give him will become in him. The Holy Spirit, the believer of Christ, he is the wellspring. You know, he is the one who produces in you living water, who produces you the grace to press on, to persevere, to thrive, to delight, to enjoy. He's the one who convicts you of sin when you turn against him. He's the one who compels you. The Holy Spirit is a compelling God. He doesn't sort of coax you with nice little words. He forces you. And you might say, well, that seems a little too strong, doesn't it? The challenge is this, is that if the Holy Spirit doesn't compel me, I don't do it. 
Because my instinct is to do whatever I want, to be like this woman. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the Christian actually is compelled by the Holy Spirit. Because if not, we would always go by what is best for me, my own self-exaltation. Like this woman, we would do whatever it feels best for me. And whatever I think I can do to make sure that my life is well taken care of and secure, that's the world. The only way that that changes is it has to be a transformation. And that transformation is the Holy Spirit comes through God's grace. And he literally, as we see in Romans 6, we no longer are a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. We have this transformation that the Holy Spirit takes control. And then now he compels me, even when I want to sin, to not sin. Before, I always wanted to turn away from the Lord. I always want my own way. But now, even when I do turn away from the Lord, there's a prompter. He's always saying, wait, something's wrong. You don't want to take that route. That's a broken cistern now. Don't go that way. So that compelling force pushes us to obedience, to love, to, to trust, to believe. Now the question is, how does that happen? How does that take place? How does the wellspring of God's Holy Spirit produce in us living water that establishes everything? One thing is for certain, it's not because we try hard or because we come to church every Sunday, because we teach the Bible, go on a mission trip. It's just not enough. The only way is that this broken cistern that we naturally turn to, well, Jesus had to be the very source of that living water. And the only way he could do it is he had to become a broken cistern, a broken well for us. I want us to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. The Apostle Paul says this. And I really think if you look at this, it's almost like he's using broken cistern language. Jesus emptied himself. He became the broken cistern by taking on. Now, when you have a broken cistern, spiritually speaking, what you're doing is you're saying, I don't want to trust God. I'm going to exalt myself. I'm going to make myself greater than everybody else and anything else. I am the most important person in this world. But Jesus, who took on the broken cistern, does not, who rightly is the most important person ever to walk this earth. Instead, he empties himself, takes on the form of a servant, becoming born in the likeness of men, humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He empties himself, becomes a broken sister. He humbles himself and lowers himself so that we would be lifted up. And he does so on that cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The well of God's presence is no longer there for him. Whatever that looks like in God's sovereign mystery, somehow the, the full fountain of God that he promises to us, Jesus was emptied of that. And because he was emptied of that, he did that so that we might be full of God's perfect righteousness. So when God sees you, he does not see stagnant water. He sees living water. He sees his son. He sees the righteousness of God. And if you are a believer of Christ, you are truly 
one who has the wellspring of life in you. You don't have to go outside of you to find that. You don't get suddenly spiritually high because you go to a retreat. You don't need to do that. That's why when you just simply go before God's word and some of the most intimate and delightful times are just simply coming into your own bedroom, having God's word open and just reading it and seeing the Lord just convict you and strike you. That's because we have the wellspring of life within us. And that is a powerful means of God's grace. Water is one of the most powerful forces in our world. During the terrible rainstorms, we had a small leak in our roof. And here's the thing is that we had a, we just got a new roof. So I was uh, met with our roofer. We went upstairs, and he showed me. There was a really tiny little hole. But the thing about water is that it always finds where the weakest point is. It just you know, conglomerates together and finds that little hole, and it will get through. The challenge is that nothing can resist the power of water. Nothing, ultimately. Some of you in this room have the wellspring of eternal life in you. But it's been a while since you have experienced God's grace because you've resisted him. You've run from him. You're saying, and so you're so distant from him, distant from his word. You've checked out spiritually, emotionally, You haven't served him and his people in any way. And you once served God's people and cared and were compassionate, but now you're not. We literally want to take a break, not just from the church, but from God himself. But the water cannot be stopped. And when you try to resist the water, it will find its way out. It will. That Praise be to God, that's true. And that's how we know God will always run after you. He's always there through Christ. But aren't you weary yet of running? So some of you have been running from the Lord. Someone here has been running, and you know you are. And you've been cold in your heart. But if you are a believer of Christ, that wellspring is flowing. And you're putting up these little dams to stop that water. You're saying, I don't want the Lord. I don't want him. But eventually the water just bursts through. And you need to hear the gospel again. And Jesus promises that when you hear, he says, come to me, all you who are weary. And sometimes that weariness is just you resisting the Lord. And he says, stop resisting. I will give you rest. I'm going to take your yoke. But that means repentance, turning today. If you've never trusted in Christ, it's a broken sister in life. You might not feel it now, but there will come a day where you go to that broken cistern, you think there's water there, but it'll be dry, bone dry. And when you go, you do not want to face the Lord one day with an empty well. God promises he is your fountain of living waters, but you have to surrender to him. And when you do, you will never be disappointed. Let's pray together. Father, we turn to you for those, I pray, O Lord, who have been running from you, who have perhaps resisted you. Holy Spirit, 
break down their dams. Would you flood them with your grace? Help them to see that whether it's their own successes in this world, maybe their children's successes and prosperity, that is an empty cistern. They will experience how broken that cistern is one day, whether it's tomorrow, five years, 10 years, maybe to the end of their days. But one day they will come and see how empty of a place that is. I pray that rather than waiting for that, turn their hearts, oh Lord, right now. Break through. Father, for those who have not trusted in you, I pray, oh Lord, that they would come to see the living Christ. That Jesus, you emptied yourself and made yourself nothing. Took on the very form of a slave coming obedient to death on a cross so that they would have the very righteousness, the living waters flowing out of their hearts to experience joy unspeakable, indescribable. But there is not a single one of us, not even themselves, who can change that heart. Only you can. So we pray, O Lord, that you would save every person in this room Let not one person leave, O Lord, this place without truly believing that Christ Jesus is Lord and King and he is worthy of our worship, of our honor, of whatever talent, skill, gift we have is nothing compared to the fountain of living waters that you promise. As we come to this table, may we do so with a lot of joy. In Jesus' name we pray.